My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. It's simple. Kill the Batman. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Hello and welcome to the Film Classification Podcast from the BBFC. This is podcast number three and our subject today is sex. And with that, let me introduce my co-host, Lucy Brett, one of our fellow examiners here. Hello, Lucy. Hi, James. Um, we should also say that you, whilst you are an examiner, you're actually doing a different job at the moment. What are you doing? I'm the BBFC's education officer, so I coordinate our education and outreach work. Now, people perhaps don't realise we actually go out to schools and colleges, universities and even round tables and all sorts of organisations and we talk about our work. So if people are listening and thinking, actually, I'd quite like you to come and talk to us, how do they go about that? Well, if you, um, most of the visits we do are for secondary schools and universities and we have a website for students called Students BBFC, www.sbbfc.co.uk and um, students can go there, all their teachers, there's a special area for teachers where they can request an external visit or contact us to ask if we can go and visit them. We also have a video conferencing uh, suite at the board and um, we're very keen to work with schools, primary schools, secondary schools, universities on um, doing video conferences so that examiners don't have to travel all over the country much as we enjoy it. So so this is schools who have the new electronic whiteboards. It's yeah. all changed from our day, hasn't it? It has all changed. The world keeps changing. Well, Lucy, I'm really delighted that you could join us uh, for this podcast. You've got a great deal of experience here as an examiner, and I think it's going to be really interesting to talk to you about sex, which is <laughs> our big subject we're going to deal with later, particularly, I think, at the junior categories. People don't always associate that subject, but it does come up at UNPG. And 12, you also have to be aware of all the innuendo and Absolutely. accidental euphemisms that will litter our conversation, no doubt. But as always with the podcast, let's start off with a roundup of the news. And I'm going to start with the obscenity trial. This is a trial of a man called Michael Peacock in South London. It's attracted quite a lot of publicity and rarely for this subject, which we deal with on a daily basis in this building. It got some mainstream publicity. Other people started talking about the, the OPA, the Obscene Publications Act. I think it's worth reiterating the official positions as a result of that trial, because there was quite a lot of speculation in the paper that the OPA was outdated, that things were going to change, the CPS was going to throw its guidelines out of the window. Well, the CPS has made it clear that, uh, and I quote them exactly, that the fact that a jury has acquitted someone does not mean that the guidance is incorrect. And they're pointing very much to the fact that this was a particular trial with particular circumstances. And I can tell you from a BBFC perspective that uh, our role here, it's not to decide the law, but it's to enforce it. And we take our guidance from the law enforcement agencies very much guided by the CPS. So that doesn't mean that things like the OPA don't get looked at and these trials form a part of that in the long term, uh, but the positions are quite clear for the moment. Now in terms of notable works that we've had through the doors here, I did want to mention Star Wars <laughs> Episode 1 in 3D. Lucy, you have a terrible, terrible confession to make for a BBFC examiner, don't you? I have never seen Star Wars, James. It's almost as if someone should make a Radio 4 comedy about it, but I have never seen Star yeah, Wars. No, unbelievable. I wasn't born when it came out the Don't first say one. that to a 45-year-old <laughs> man who queued around the block at Market Square in Cambridge to watch it, all excited. Okay, well, the reason I mention episode one is because uh, people may know, fans of Star Wars will know that Lucasfilm is turning the original, sorry, not the original, the prequels into 3D cinema versions, and we've had the first one through the door, so uh, I classified that a couple of weeks ago, and that's gone out at its the U that it received originally. 
It's got a couple of moments in it, I have to say, episode one, but it's firmly fantastical. And unlike the original trilogy, it has quite a lot of comedy in it uh, to alleviate any moments of threat. Um, and I'm also going to mention a 1939 thriller called The Spy in Black. Now, we're not allowed as BBFC examiners to give our opinions about films. That's no. not what we're here to do. But as this is such an old film, I am going to say it's a terrific World War II thriller. And uh, the reason I mention it is because at the very beginning of it, it's very unusual, the first time I'd ever seen it, up pops a thank you to the BBFC oh. for contributing towards the restoration yes, of the right. prints, which we did with the BFI. Uh, a couple of years ago. Well, that's come out on DVD. It's set up in the Orkney Islands and it's about a German infiltration to try and spy on the Scapa Flow fleet, uh, trying to pick them off uh, as they left port with the U-boats. Uh, I'm also going to mention a couple of films in the cinemas at the moment. Uh, War Horse is in cinema. That contains infrequent moderate battle violence. This is the big new epic from Steven Spielberg that's getting quite a lot of publicity. I will say, you know, we, we have on our website at bbfc.co.uk, we mention this every time, something called ECI, which is a fantastic set of uh, descriptors. It's several paragraphs giving you a lot of detail about the film, telling you exactly why it's a 12A and not a PG. Uh, but I can tell you more or less what that says in the case of War Horse, that this is not a very strong 12A. This is uh, a war film, of course, but a lot of it is not set in war. There is little in the way of blood and injuries. But there is, however, some battle violence, which is not the sort of thing we normally pass at PG, but it's not, not a strong one. No, and it might also be worth mentioning for sort of parents um, that War Horse also has some scenes in which horses are apparently hurt, um, and that can be quite upsetting for sort of younger viewers. And of course, we, get, we go out of our way because of um, the various legislation in the UK to make sure that no animals have been hurt, and, and War Horse is a good example of a film where it may look on screen very much as if the animal's been hurt, but nobody and no animals have been hurt in the making of it. But it's something parents should bear in mind, I think. Yes, absolutely. That's a very good point, Lucy. Well, we can rationalise that, can't yes. we? At those moments, younger children can't always do that. Uh, I'll also mention The Iron Lady, which is doing business in the cinemas at the moment, and uh, it's a biopic about Baroness Thatcher with the consumer device that contains real images of moderate violence, injury detail, and brief nudity, wow. which I know <laughs> has caused some concern in some quarters. And I, I noticed one newspaper article uh, a couple of days ago from a journalist who said it was so brief, and they were a bit concerned about what it meant with uh, a biopic about Mrs. Thatcher, and they didn't even notice it. Well, I can tell you that it is uh, news footage and set in 1982 as the fleet returned victorious from the Falklands War, and there are a couple of young women waving to the sailors in exuberant fashion. I was fashion. about to say, exuberant nudity. Yeah, <laughs> exuberant nudity. Uh, so that's where that is. Um, one of the other films out at the moment is Shame, uh, which we're going to talk about in more yes, detail later. I saw it this morning. Which has a, a lot of details in it, but we're talking about sex today, and that very much fits into that. Can I say thank you, not just to those of you who've downloaded the podcast, and last time I looked we were well in excess of 30,000 downloads for this podcast, which is absolutely fantastic, bearing in mind there's only two of them out there so far. This will be the third. Um, but also, for those of you who've got in touch, you can email us uh, podcast at bbfc.co.uk. And we've had a few emails, quite a few actually, um, and I've picked out three of them for their specific questions, which I thought we'd address on air, because they're questions we do get asked quite a lot, especially when we go out and give talks. Um, the first one's from an email, uh, it's an email from uh, somebody called James Vaughan. Uh, James is a film fan. He's thanked us very much for the podcast, which he said is fascinating. Thank you very much indeed, James, for your comments. His question is, he wanted to know if I could ask around the office to see which films proved the most problematic for people in terms of deciding a certificate, the problematic to watch, and if there are any in hindsight you wish you'd dealt with in a different way. Wow. Lucy, what have you found the most problematic films to do? 
Well, I get asked this an awful lot by students, um, ranging from sort of eight, nine-year-olds up to uh, students at universities. It's a really common sort of question and point of interest. Um, obviously, there are films with really strong content, which can be incredibly difficult to watch uh, because they're graphic, because they're strong, because they tap into the strongest sort of material, the strongest areas of human experience. And by that, I'm talking about films like The Killer Inside Me, um, like Antichrist, like a Serbian film, and those films can be very difficult to watch. Um, BBFC examiners are human, we, we all have our own, own backgrounds, but what's interesting being an examiner is it's not always what you think is going to get to you that will get to you. So um, the day before I got married, I came into work and um, I was given an episode of, a, I won't name it, but an American crime drama for DVD, and in it a bride was killed by a formaldehyde, I think, in her wedding dress. So it's not exclusive to the strongest content, things that may tap into your emotional life at that moment. Um, but I find, yeah. It's, it's an odd job in that you watch a lot of material you wouldn't choose to watch, you don't, don't choose to watch. Absolutely. And it can be a Monday morning um, and you can be watching a very violent film, you could be watching uh, in the night garden or you could be watching hardcore pornography and Absolutely. it's just an unusual job in that sense. Yeah and you never know what's going to get to you. I once sobbed in the office James, um, I don't normally confess to this, um, I once sobbed because I watched a high school movie in which the jock went out with the ugly fat girl and I don't know why that tapped into my own high school and school and university experience but it so did and I wept like a baby so you, you never quite know what's going to, to going to get you. That's fine Lucy, Mark Camo confessed on Five Live that he sobbed during um, High School Musical 3 Aww. so it was sad at the end, it was quite <laughs> moving. Um, for my own, I mean I would, I would add, I, I would agree with you I think in terms of those difficult films, watching a Serbian film which is a particularly aggressive film and I felt that it's um, a lot of debate about what the film meant and we had, to, we had to debate that within this building very much when we were coming to a classification decision about it. But it, it, it wasn't a frivolous film, it was oh, a film no. that was done seriously and it had an impact on you and that made it worse. Had it been uh, you know, some teenagers out with a camera who'd made a film just to shock people, it perhaps would have just brushed over us, but it didn't. It hit you full on that film, didn't it? It certainly hit me because when I watched it, I was seven months pregnant. For those people who read about the film or watched it, yeah. would know that there's a particular scene which was, was incredibly hard to watch as a pregnant woman. Although this said, um, I am well enough uh, experienced here to, to step away from my sort of personal responses to a film and see it more broadly. And yeah. Than, than just Although it's worth saying you do need your personal responses to inform you about the impact it's going to have on the audience. You can't just, it's not, I used to be a BBC journalist and it was very much a part of our job really to give yourself a bit of distance and some of the horrific stories that you covered. But in this job, I kind of feel if the day I stop crying in films is the day I will no longer be able to do this job. Yes, and I mean, I have a bit of a reputation here for not so much the crying, despite my anecdote earlier, <laughs> but for, for the screaming and shouting in horror films. And um, I remember an examiner saying to me, oh, it's a good job it wasn't you that classified Black Swan, Lucy, because you would have been screeching. Yeah, in the, <laughs> <laughs> you heard the dialogue. I once, I once grabbed the knee of a BBFC director, Robin Duval, um, during the screening of Open Water because I was so terrified of the shark and I grabbed his knee and shouted. <laughs> so um, I think that's important. I think it's important that the people who classify films are responding to them and in that Rob way. Robin's never forgotten. <laughs> and in fact, he walks with a slight limp, I notice now. Um, I, I was going to answer this, yes. I asked around the office. The Tormented was a film that came up with one of my colleagues who said it was a horror that was right on the 1518 board and he agonised a lot about that. It gave him trouble, just to give you that one, James, as well. And one of our former colleagues, Ros Bates, who's now left the organisation, but I read a newspaper article. Uh, that Roz gave an interview in when she talked about the others. And I have to say, before I joined the BBFC, 
I went to a press conference in my job as a journalist with uh, Alejandro Amanabar, who made the others, and I actually asked him about the certificate because I felt 12 was a very low certificate for this film. And he said, oh, no, no, it's very much for 12-year-olds, and I'm, I'm delighted it got that certificate. But interestingly, I did read this article Ros wrote where she said it's the one classification decision that gives her the occasional sleepless moment. That, uh, that maybe you know, she would have revisited it differently, who knows. Another email, this is from Gary Dugdale. Uh, again, thank you for our podcast, saying they're very interesting. He's asked this question about reclassifying films if they're re-released at later dates. And his example is Luc Besson's Leon, originally classified 18, then years later re-released with extra scenes included, but as a 15 certificate. He also cites the Terminator, originally 18, released in the 80s, later released as a 15. Lucy, you can just explain how that process works. Well, any film that comes in or DVD that comes in has to get a current certificate, which is based on our current existing guidelines. So if a film was classified 20, 30 years ago, it's not at all inconceivable that under current guidelines it would receive a different certificate. Or often that means a lower certificate, but not always. BBFC decisions are always going to try and reflect public opinion, and public opinion changes. There are different concerns that are overriding, and our guidelines research very much bears that out. And I've got one final one which I'm going to mention now. This is from Simon Jones in Bristol, who's asked another question we do get asked a lot, which is about classification decisions and whether they were right at the time. And he cited the Star Wars films. I get the feeling that Simon is a bit of a fan. Um, and he says that... He's surprised that Star Wars is a you. It still surprises me now, let alone back in 1977 when I first saw it. What did the BBFC say at the time to get a U rather than a PG or a 12? And is there ever a consideration to reclassify them when they come in late? Well, the first thing to say is that the 12 wasn't available in 1977. So or the PG. All the people would have been an A, I suppose, was available to them. An A equivalent to PG or a double A. Uh, stroke 15, uh, which was a fairly stark um, uh, jump, but the A was certainly there for them. Now, I've brought in, I've actually got them here, Lucy, yeah. you'll be very familiar with these. But this is one of the great aspects of our job. So when Simon emailed this, I thought, I'd, I have to say, I'm a bit of a Star Wars fan too, as you might know, Lucy. So it was a great excuse to get the paper files. And this uh, reflects, obviously, the age before computers. Everything's written on computers today. But these old paper files, handwritten, sometimes typed reports in here from the original examiners who saw the film. And I've been through those, and I'll give Simon a more detailed response to the questions that he asks. But these come from our, uh, our department called iServe. And we're going to hear in a moment from the, the man who runs that department as our interview for the week. Um, but to answer your question, the first thing to say is those films were classified 35 years ago. And as Lucy was just saying, it was just a different landscape. The BBFC operated in a way in the 70s it perhaps wouldn't do in the modern era, as a lot of organisations of its ilk. Today we have published guidelines, we do interviews, we are very open to the press. In the 70s it wasn't so much like that, so films like Jaws and Grease mm -hmm. and Airplane in the early 80s all went through at very low categories and I think it's safe to say none of those films today would get through at PGs and, and the U's that they got through then. So I can't give you a very specific answer as to why Charred Bodies and a Severed Arm in Star Wars got a U in 1977, except to say, Simon, that you are right. Under modern guidelines that would be a difficult circle to square. Thank you for your emails. Keep them coming. Podcast at bbfc.co.uk. Okay, it's time for our interview. 
and today we're going to speak to the man who runs that department I told you about, mysteriously called iServe. 2012 is our centenary year, so it's 100 years since we've been going, 1912 established in late 1912, I think November will be the, uh, the official time. We've got lots of events planned, including, exciting, I think this is, I have to say, I think this is the most brilliant thing we're doing this year, is a series of retro black cards. And they've already begun, if you go to the cinema today, you may see a very early pre-war black card, but at a... a adapted today for uh, for modern use and they are going to change through the years so we're going to go through the classic cards of the 60s the 70s the 80s and uh, bang up to date okay. and Lucy there is a really special opportunity isn't there for somebody to get involved in this absolutely on our website for younger children cbbfc.co.uk there is a centenary competition running at the moment where young children are invited to design uh, black cards go at the front of a cinema screening and um, the winning design will hopefully be shown in cinemas across the country ahead of one of the one of the blockbusters in the summer and um, it's a very exciting opportunity for them to have a real say in, in how the BBFC presents itself. How exciting would it be to design a black card I know. and see it up in the cinema? So, I know. Uh, we're the only organisation can offer that as a, as a competition prize. Absolutely and I mean there are other prizes too so um, the, the the child who wins will be invited with some members of their class either here or we'll go to their school and do an examiner training day so they get to get really involved in what we do. Excellent. Okay, well let's uh, hear now from Edward Lamberti whose job it has been to trawl through the archives in preparation for the centenary, particularly uh, with reference to the BBFC 100 Years book. We've come down to the basement in 3 Soho Square, and this is our purpose-built theatre, so where examiners sit. In fact, I'm sitting in one of the examiner's seats. We have our laptop open in front of us when the films are rolling. It's a rather nice place to record interviews, actually, because the sound is fantastic. And joining me is Edward Lamberti, who's head of a department here that has a rather sinister title of Information Services. Absolutely right. It's a bit like Brazil, isn't it, that, it, that department title? Information Retrieval? Or? Yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, I assure you it's not really sinister in practice. No, you're not the Michael Palin character getting that information. No. Um, and Ed, one of your roles there for this year, our centenary year, is to delve into the very rich archive that the BBFC has going back that century to come up with some examples. I know a lot of this is to do with the book, which we are going to talk about in more detail later in the year, but the, it is 2012 and I wanted to preview mm -hmm. the centenary. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm fascinated really with what you're finding out about this. Obviously, this is a, ch a study in, in UK culture for 100 years, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah, I mean, as you say, it, it's, you know, this has been, you know, a lot of this has been to do with the, the research for the book and we've been working with some fantastic Authors who've been working on this, and they've yeah they've just unearthed all manner of things which um, are going to make for a really fascinating read. Um, I mean, I've got a few examples here if you just want to. I'd love to hear some. Yeah. So, so well, what have you found? So, to research this era, the the sort of the main port of call really is the BB, BBFC's scenario reports that are largely held in the BFI's archive. The scenario reports were re reports written by kind of the equivalent of examiners uh, then. Um, and they were reports responding to either plays that had been sent into the board or screenplays that had been sent into the board in advance of films being made. And our examiners at the time would give advice as to what the board might think of these things. And so with regard to sort of the war years, um, in amongst the usual things that one might expect about, you know, our 
reactions to films depicting the war or subjects that might be seen to be damaging to the morale of the nation or whatever, of some rather interesting little nuggets about some of the other things that were deemed to be undesirable. So for example, there's a film called It's in the Bag, and um, the board was generally happy with the proposed film, but it did request some odd changes uh, to be made. Uh, for example, it wanted the word lousy to be removed, um, as well as the sound of fresh raspberries and the depiction of the gents as obviously a gents. They're now, direct quotes, are they? from? They are quotes from the scenario report for this film, 1943. Uh, a slightly bewildering set of um, requirements. Uh, yeah. The sound of fresh raspberries. Yeah. So we're not talking about two Ronnie's phantom raspberry blower raspberries, are we? I mean, they're fresh. They're not fresh, are they? I they're anything but. Uh, yeah, they're, any, they're anything but. Although I suppose they're they're kind of ripe in a different sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I'm not sure, and 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 it sort of leaves one feeling a little. You know, it's a bit of a head scratcher. Squelchy um, voice, maybe. Maybe it's it, it felt could, to be. It could be that. May, maybe this connotation. Was, maybe this was deemed to be sort of damaging to morale or something yes, like that. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, it may be that it that it was considered to be uncouth or something, you know, quote unquote, you know, I don't know. And the depiction of the gents as, as obviously, obviously a gents. gents. Yeah. Um, uh. I can only imagine that, I mean, you know, in the 1940s, depictions of toilets in film were in general extremely scarce. I mean, I think it's said that I think I'm right in saying that Psycho is the first film to feature a flushing toilet. Wow. That's not that's not something taken from board, the board archives. I think that's, that's common that's knowledge. From so I from imagine the brain of Ed Lamberti. Well, I, it's, I think it's just from, from sort of <laughs> history. Um, so yeah, I can only imagine that these were considered to be things that would, I don't know, offend manners or something Again, like that. Again, uncouth. I don't know. I mean, elsewhere we've got, uh, we, we, were, we asked um, a production company to delete the reference to Miss Filling's bottom in a film, and also more generally to de in, in the same film, to, de uh, to delete sex appeal. Mm. Now, I don't know if that means <laughs> sex appeal the way we think of it now. I mean, I saw a film at the weekend uh, where I would say the, the, the actor playing the main character has sex appeal. Now, if the board asked for the sex appeal to be cut from that movie, it would be pretty hard. That would be the main character's charisma. That would be the main character's yeah, charisma. All gone. <laughs> all gone. Um, and then in, the, in a film called Kiss the Bride Goodbye, we recommended that the rude noises from the hippopotamus be removed. Excellent. Now, That's so got to be one of the greatest... That's cut a, requirements that's, in the hit board's history. That's one of the. That's up there. It really yeah. is. Um, I can't help feeling a little bit sorry for the hippopotamus. I, I mean, do. To us, they might be rude noises, but the hippopotamus, hippopotamus doesn't mean to be rude. No. You know, I so. think, in many ways, the hippopotamus has been victimised in I, in this. I think a case could be made. And we should probably say that people will be able to purchase the book at some point. It's all in progress at the moment, isn't it's it? It's all in progress. It's due to be published towards the end of the year, um, and I think it's going to be. Uh, I hope people will find it to be a you know, a really, really good read. Well, based on uh, this chat, I'm sure they will. Uh, Edward Lamberti, thank you so much. Pleasure. Pleasure, James. Thank you. Excellent to hear from uh, Ed Lamberti. The raspberries is intriguing, isn't it? I know. I want to get my hands on that hippo. Yeah, poor hippo. I, I felt a bit sorry for the hippo. It's doing what nature asked it to do. Hey, do you want to play? Your hard drive is filthy. I mean, it is dirty. Slowly. I'm trying to help you. How are you helping me, huh? You come in here, and you're a weight on me. You're a burden. You want to get out of here? I could take you somewhere. We're family. We're meant to look after each other.
Okay, let's talk about sex as the song goes through the categories. It's a subject we've particularly chosen because the film Shame is in cinemas at the moment. But before we move on to the higher end of it, I wanted to start with, I don't suppose it, it's as much sex as innuendo uh, that we talk about at U and PG. And Lucy, I know this is quite a, a particular area of yours. What, does, what do the guidelines do to help us play sex references at, at very junior categories? When we're at U, we're really thinking at the very milder end of sexual behaviour and innuendo. Um, we have found when we've spoken to parents that there is a little bit of tolerance in the junior categories for things younger children are unlikely to understand at all, things that will whistle straight over their head. So you might find in quite a lot of cartoons aimed at younger children there might be tiny moments of innuendo where as an adult you raise your eyebrows but your four-year-old is still happily watching um, the fantasy characters at play. And a good example of that is Gnomeo and Juliet, which is a used certificate film aimed at children with garden gnomes playing out the, uh, the classic Shakespeare story. And there are a couple of references there. One reference to Juliet's junk in the trunk. I know. Now, did you, do you immediately know what that means? Is I had an idea, but you told me before the podcast. So yeah. I don't want to preempt it. <laughs> it's quite an Americanism. And I, I have confessed that the, um, the examiner who wrote the report I read up did have to look it up in Urban Dictionary, but that refers to a large ass to use the American expression. Uh, but like you say, it may not even register to adults in this country, but it's something that would go over the, the heads of children. And later there's some um, innuendo uh, with a squirrel when he talks about dropping his nuts. And there's a reference to his nuts the size of boulders. And that's a great example, isn't it, of yeah. a joke that works on two levels. Absolutely. And, the, and that sort of innuendo is the sort of thing where, where as long as it isn't too crude, where it really might be possible to pass that at you and certainly at PG. Um, another you that's out in cinemas or has just been out in cinemas would be Puss in Boots, where there again there's a pun on um, some golden eggs, which are never seen. But um, as, a, as an adult, it's, it's slightly ruder than, has more of a frisson than if you are a, a, a four or five year old who's excited about Shrek's buddy and, and what he's getting up to. And on the subject of Shrek, I'm going to mention Shrek 2, which came to our attention for quite a few reasons. Was, strangely, it was actually cut, it was past 12A initially on advice and cut because of a headbutt. We then had the issue of a couple of uses of Bloody, uh, which were prominent but comedic in it. Uh, but in terms of sex, there was uh, an iconic moment recreated at the beginning, wasn't there? On oh, the beach. Oh yes, the, the, the from you've forgotten from about it. You've forgotten Fiona you, and Shrek on the uh, beach. The only reason I forgot James because I I did classify that film and because the I'm so I'm so um, preoccupied with the swearing, which of course warranted yeah. most of the complaints. Um, Shrek two did have them, uh, an ogre and an ogre rolling about on a beach together. It had quite a lot of kissing, um, and also it had a fleeting reference to Pinocchio, perhaps wearing. Uh, women's underwear, but all of those things, when you watch it again, they're, they're tied up with the dialogue, they're not really the focus. And as for sort of kissing and cuddling, our guideline research would show that parents are okay with the mildest sort of sexual behaviour well, at you. Uh, well, this is picked out particularly because it was what we call, it's all very strange language, it was horizontal kissing and yes. cuddling, so they're on top of each other, but they're in the surf, and of course I've put the picture on, on my um, screen in front of me, it was a homage, shall we say, to From Here to Eternity. Crucially, it ends with a joke, so I think that that shows us that the comedy in, in films will often mitigate or, or balance out perceived offence with anything, and as long as things aren't too crude, I mean, of course we wouldn't pass really crude content at you or PG, but as long as there's, they're part of a joke and they're unlikely to be the focus for a younger audience. It's when it becomes overt, when it, there's no other interpretation for it, that's when it becomes an issue for us at PG. And yeah. an example of where that crossed the line and in the end uh, came, we came up with a 12 for it was Dear John. Yes. 
which was a family, you and I classified that together, and it, you're quite right in saying it was a family afternoon, mum and daughter particularly might enjoy it, but it had a sex scene in it that sat right on the border. It, it really did, and there was just enough hints at, um, hints, not, not actual portrayal, but hints at the mechanics of um, a, a sexual encounter and enough movement and, and factors like that which just took it out of what could be said to be implied. So it wasn't an implied love scene but it, it was actually taken a little further than that. It was fairly marginal with Dear John. In the case of that film, uh, it went to a second team. So you and I had our discussions about it. A second team came in, took a view. The director got involved at that stage. So it got a pretty good outing in the building. A lot of films don't need that. They're no. straightforward. When you say the director, you mean the director of the BBFC, not the yes. director of the film. <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah, we didn't get him or her in. Quite a broad category 12, isn't it? Because at one end you've got Dear John just crept into the category for a sex scene. At the top end, I'm going to cite as an example Breaking Dawn, which is the latest of the Twilight movies. Are you, um, are you Team Edward or Team Jacob, Lucy? Team Edward, absolutely, all the way. So I didn't even know until Caitlin pointed out in the last podcast that I had to choose teams. Absolutely. Well, you're Edward. I, I was sort of going to go with Edward as well, but I feel that we can't all be on the same side. Anyway, there's a sex scene in that film, and perhaps you could take us through that, Lucy, because uh, it has caused some complaints. Breaking Dawn includes a sex scene which is a pinnacle and very important sex scene in the entire Twilight Saga. It was important in the book, and it's important in this film. It's the scene in which Edward and Bella consummate their marriage on their honeymoon. Um, it's largely played off their faces. There's not a lot of nudity, um, certainly no genital detail or anything particularly strong. And there's very little movement. Uh, there's a tiny hints at it, but nothing really strong. Although at one point during the scene, Edward accidentally breaks the headboard of the bed. So it gives you an idea that there's some, some vigour in the room, even yeah. if we don't see it. Um, the, the playing off the faces, the lack of detail, means it fits within 12, 12A, where we, we say sexual activity may be briefly and discreetly portrayed, and that sex references shouldn't go beyond what's suitable for younger teenagers. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting example, though, because Breaking Dawn came in before it was quite finished, and the senior examiners and, and um, approvers were asked if someone could watch it and say to the company what they thought it would get, and in its original form was given a 15 and the company chose to reduce the sex scene and remove some of it to keep it within the boundaries of 12a because of course it's a huge part of their audience the yeah. 12 15 year old audience. and that's not an uncommon thing particularly that 15 12a uh, typical sort of bond born area that films will come in for advice first i think this is a really interesting one because we often talk about fantasy being a mitigating factor but never in reference to sex it's always about violence but actually it does come into play here for sex, and as I say, I've written the, um, I did the examination, I've written the replies to the uh, complaints we've had. We haven't had a lot of complaints, but there have been a couple. And one of the points that I've made to correspondents is one of the complaints has been that this is a portrayal of rough sex and that's not an appropriate subject at 12, and, and that's correct in many ways. And had that been a non-fantastical film, about a couple, a sort of indie film, about a couple, and he had a penchant for rough sex that she was scared of. That would just would not have been a subject Absolutely. we would have been comfortable with at 12. But actually, he was a vampire. With super strength. With super strength, and it was a problem for him, and it was a fantastical thing, and that made it completely different. And that's really where our role comes in as, as humans doing this job rather than a computer. It's about that context. There wasn't anyone sitting there thinking, oh, this is exploring a dark area. It's about Bella, a human, marrying a vampire, and Bella transitioning towards that supernatural life herself. And that's, that fantasy element does mitigate. The first time 
in my time here, I can remember fantasy elements being a mitigating factor for sex. But maybe the Beowulf nudity is another example. Yeah. I mean, certainly when you get higher up, there are quite funny examples of that sort of thing. So, I mean, I'm always, I always feel very attached, although I didn't classify it, but I remember the discussion internally of uh, Team America World Police. And there's an example of the fantasy in that this is a film made using puppets and marionettes where what could be, if it were live action, a very, very strong sex scene is actually extremely funny. And the strong detail is everything you bring to it rather than what you actually see because they're not anatomically correct and they are after all just sort of dollies. So there's an example where sort of even higher up the kind of fantasy element, the fact that it's a comedy can affect our response and, and make it a, a, and alter our classification decision. And there are still people who believe that sex scene should go at 18 because it's very strong positionally, but yeah. as you say, they're dolls. There's yeah. no <laughs> genitals. There's, there can't be any nudity because there is no nudity to be had on a doll. And it's a really unusual one, and it caused a bit of head-scratching in this building. I think so, especially because it was there was a lot of thought about how we would warn parents and, and consumers you want to know what they're going to see without saying something that was disingenuous and was taking you away from what you were actually seeing. I have fascinating debates usually with university students on that very scene and we'll talk about it and yeah. the room is always split exactly between people who say that's really strong yes. and people who say they're just dollies yes. and um, it's, a, it's a fascinating area of discussion. And uh, it's worth mentioning that if you're interested in that subject area there's an American documentary called This Film Is Not Yet Rated about the MPAA, our equivalent organisation in the United States and they go into some detail. They talk to Trey Parker uh, and they show an extended version of that scene that had even more stuff in it, which I'm not even going to go into because it strays into that uh, area we were talking about earlier with obscenities. Um, and he basically says they did it to annoy the MPAA well, at the time. He said, yes, I think he sort of argues that they put the stronger stuff in so that when they got a cut down version, it would be the strongest it could be. But of course, they, they didn't play this with us, they, they submitted a version which yeah. we, gave, we gave a 15. Well, we're on to 15 and 18. Let's just mention uh, some of those higher end works when it comes to sex and that difference between 15 and 18. Uh, I think probably still the very top end of 15 is Monster's Ball. It's a few years old now, Oscar winning film, but a strong sex scene in it. And Lucy, can you explain to people who, who look at that scene and say, why is that not strong, very strong sex at 18? Well, there's, there's several reasons. One um, is a shift in the guidelines. The guidelines at 15 used to state that if it was within a relationship that there was a different, um, a different tack could be taken. And um, that scene was seen as one where two characters are at the start of a relationship. So it was seen as a sort of more responsible sex scene, if you like. Parallels were also drawn with Don't Look Now, the Nicholas Rogue film, again, in which uh, at, a very, at a crucially sort of very distressing time in a relationship, a couple um, explore their emotions through their sex, uh, sex lives. Monster's Ball is undoubtedly a very strong and powerful scene. And if you watch it in isolation, I think it can seem extremely strong at 15. But if you watch the entire film, it's very carefully contextualised and it's about um, a hugely important character development moment for those characters and about, a, it's not about titillation, although there's quite a lot of nudity in it. It's about a, a, mo a moment of, um, of despair and a connection and those sorts of things. And you have to take it within that context, I think. Um, it's also the length of the scene 
I think, suggests that you see even more detail than you actually see. You do see moments of detail and nudity, but they are quite fleeting in the scene, which is quite artistic and has quite a lot of long shots of the action. But nevertheless, I think it still stands there at the top of 15. And you mentioned Nick Rogue's film, Don't Look Now, which I also noted here. Um, people will remember that it originally probably an X. It might even have been in the time of the X, but it yeah. certainly was 18 for a while, but it's actually at 15 now. Mm -hmm. That scene's been reclassified. and. Uh, Famously, the, you know, the debate about whether Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie were really having sex or not. And I can remember reading a few years ago, somebody who was on set at the time saying, I can tell you that they weren't really having sex and sort of put an end to the debate. And then last year, somebody who was on set at the time came out and said, I can tell you they were really having <laughs> sex at the time. So we still will never really know. Well, certainly you don't see that in the film, though. I you think don't see that, that in the film. Yeah, at 15, it's worth saying. And it's uh, a very loving scene and it's intercut with a lot of things. I mean, Don't Look Now is interesting because you keep pulling away. So it's intercut with a couple getting dressed to go out for the evening. So again, the sequence is very long in the film, but the sex is intercut with other other elements so it, you perhaps feel like you're watching a longer sex scene than you are but again that that was also classified under the guidelines which talked about within a loving relationship being an, an important factor in considering a sex scene and cinematically i think both those scenes the director uses some distancing in the way that they're shot there's a yeah. i can't remember exactly in don't Look now but it feels like quite a locked off camera whilst the action's going on a little bit distant and that's certainly the case with monsters ball you get bits of foreground in the way, not just to mask nudity images, but to make it something that's happening away from you rather than a very close-up sex scene, which would have given it a different feel. I mean, they certainly have a very intense feeling, both those films, and they're, they're very pivotal scenes within the films. And the last film to mention on this subject is uh, one of our most complained about films from 2011, and that's Black Swan. Yes. Uh, we have mentioned it on the podcast before, but that is a film that's attracted some complaint and some, some note at 15 as well for its sex scenes. And it's this difference about, it, it's with Black Swan more so I think than the other films where the narrative is perhaps a very important factor. With Black Swan what made people a little bit uncomfortable was there's a bit of mechanical elements to it where a girl is performing oral sex on another girl and there's a little bit of, of wiping her lips afterwards and that's, that's where we get very, very close to what we would consider strong detail and people have, have complained about Black Swan, not huge numbers but there have been complaints about it and people are right in a sense to note that it's right at the top end of 1518, yeah. much more of that. That was another film that went to a second viewing, director uh, got involved, director of the BBFC got involved in that decision but not much more than that and we're into 18 territory. Yeah. Uh, which brings us on to shame, Lucy. Interestingly, with shame, there's there's a combination, I think, at play of both the mechanics and the strength of the actual sex scenes in which we are way out of what you're you're getting in Black Swan and we're talking about lots of thrusting. We're talking about um, there's a threesome, for example, which is quite strongly portrayed. And um, there's lots of emphasis, not just on that mechanics, but also on the lead character's disconnect and the complexity of his relationship with sex, which is ultimately portrayed as relatively self-destructive. Um, so it's both the sort of mechanics there and the complicated and difficult adult nature of his relationship with sexual materials, which contribute towards the 18. It feels right from the off like a very adult work. It's talking about adult ideas. Sex addiction is a really grown-up theme, I think. It would be quite hard to have that covered outside in perhaps a very throwaway comic way in something like Hangover or Bridesmaids or something like that. And I'll also mention Choke as a film that deals 
in an adult way about sex addiction also yeah. into 18. Um, finally, finally, briefly, Lucy, let's just mention real sex yes. at 18 because there are actually a lot of films, well over 100, at 18 with real sex in it. It's not an automatic ban, it's not an automatic cut uh, these days. What qualifies a film to have real sex in it and get an 18 certificate? Well, it's as long as the film isn't a work that is aimed to titillate an audience, so as long as it's not a work of pornography, it's not, its primary purpose isn't, isn't titillation. So. It's quite a common misconception, I think, about the BBFC um, that we very rarely or that we don't pass real sex. And people will often ask me that question, especially groups at universities and things will ask me, you know, like, how come you're not, you don't allow real sex or genital nudity at 18? And um, we've been passing that infrequently, but we have been passing that for decades. Since the 70s, yeah. certainly, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and I think it was the first film was an Andy Warhol film that had an erection in it, for example. But uh, sort of back to, when it is okay. It has to be, um, in layman's terms, it has to be part of the story. It has to be there for a reason. So if you look at a film like Nine Songs, that's tracking a couple's relationship through the medium of looking at their sex life. And there are huge differences between each of the sex scenes in that film. And it is the, the whole purpose is that is that it's a contextual analysis of their sex life. So that, that, that it would be impossible to have that film without the real sex in it. Um, and as long as the real sex is contextually justified and isn't there to titillate, then there's a strong argument that adults should be free to watch it if they want. I think this is one of the things that separates us from the MPAA who don't pass routinely at their top category, which their top mainstream category, which is R, real sex, or they do have NC-17 above that, which shame, in fact, has gone at in the States. Um, but you will get mainstream films in multiplex cinemas with real sex in them because we do not intervene, as you say, as long as it's n basically it's not porn, which is the, you know, it's, it's to simplify the, uh, yeah. the policy. And if it's not illegal, it's not designed to titillate, it's not a work of pornography, then adults are free to choose to watch it or not watch it if they like. And we, we need to treat the British public like adults, and we do. I should just say we're not going to deal with sexual violence in this discussion, um, primarily because that's very closely related to violence as well as sex, of course, and it's its own issue, it's a big issue. We will deal with it thoroughly at, at a later date, of course. Lucy Brett, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this month's podcast. Uh, from Lucy and from me, James Blatch, thank you very much indeed for listening. Uh, do get in contact if you'd like to, podcast at bbfc.co.uk. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. This is Robinson you're trying to seduce me. <laughs>